Now, I think in this time in our world's existence, at this time in my life, I'm increasingly reminded of how finite life on this planet is, how it's of a limited time only. And just by way of illustration, one of the things with our interconnectedness in the modern world is that we hear news from afar. We hear about people all over, and we have friends all over and family in many places, so it's kind of good that we can get news about people we can be praying. And yet, just on Monday of this week, there were five different people that we knew of who passed into eternity. Uh, Most of them believers, thankfully, so far as we know. And so uh, we rejoice in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he were dead, yet shall he live, as he will later say in John chapter 11. We rejoice that these are not lost, that they are with Christ, which is as Paul reminds us in Philippians 1, far better. But in the last few months even, we've been reminded not only elderly people, which we might sort of say, well, you know, the demographics, uh, we only live so long, three score years and ten, and if it be more by reason of strength, yet there's this struggle in life that, that Moses spoke about in the 90th Psalm. And we expect people to get older and die. We don't like it. But we're not surprised when some people pass away. And yet a few months ago, good friends of ours had a baby suddenly die. No ostensible cause. They put a medical diagnosis of sudden infant death syndrome on it, but no indication. In fact, we were with them the day before the child passed away. And the baby looked fine. My mom was holding... Uh, it's actually a twin. My mom was holding the other twin. Our other friend was holding the other baby. We took pictures of them. The baby looked fine. The next day, in eternity. And I'm sure you've had people, if you've been on planet Earth any length of time, you've had people suddenly taken away from you, people of all ages. I remember our late brother, Boyd Nicholson Sr., who was instrumental in my mom coming to Christ. He used to look around in gospel meetings and he would point and he would say, I can say that I've buried someone about your age. Well, I can't quite say that, but I have had funerals of people from infants on up to people that were nearing 100 years old. So I've been to a lot of funerals by now too, and you probably have as well. And the wonderful thing is that we have the assurance that the word of God gives us that for the believer... Death is not the end, nor is it even some kind of step down. It is actually something that enters into something we've been waiting for all of our believing lives. Ever since we were born again by faith, we've been longing to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist would say that. I think it's in Psalm 17. Then I will be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness to look on the face of the Lord, to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord. It's something we're longing for. And yet, even if you're a believer, to have your believing loved one taken away from you, you're comforted to know they're with the Lord, but you still miss them, don't you? And I think John 11 is one of those excellent passages that gives us a little window 
into the mind and heart of God to show that he really enters into these things, not only as much as we do, but I would say far more than we do. And yet at first glance, there's something troubling here. There's a delay. The Lord Jesus gets this word that Lazarus is sick and he stays there two days more. And, you know, it has been said by many who've studied this passage that from where the Lord was geographically to where Lazarus was in Bethany, that even if the Lord left immediately, it's very likely he could not have gotten there in time before Lazarus died. That's true. And yet it still is a matter of fact, the text emphasizes for us that the Lord abode there two more days, that the Lord intentionally waits to go to Mary and Martha. And you think of what that entails. Now, let me just say off the top that there's a lot of things about life and death that we aren't privy to, a lot of things God doesn't tell us. The secret things are the Lord's, Deuteronomy 29 tells us. The things that are revealed are for us and our children. But God doesn't tell us why he does everything. Nor does God explain his timing, particularly. Now, we know he has timing. We know from Genesis 1 onwards that God created the stars, God made the seasons, God put the sun in the sky and the moon out there in space, to mark times and seasons. And so God is one who is concerned with the progress of time. And the Bible tells us that he knows all things from the end to the beginning, that he's the one who has perfect foreknowledge. And not only that, but that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. So time isn't kind of going along randomly. Time isn't happening beyond God's control. God knows about time. God knows what it's doing. And in fact, the Bible would tell us he makes all things beautiful in his time. But his time doesn't always seem to mesh with our time, does it? Because we can want something. And we say, you know, I want it right now. Now I kind of laugh because one of my children is addicted to Duolingo right now. I don't know if you know Duolingo, but it's one of these language learning apps. And in a fun kind of way, one of my children, whose name may be Nadia, is uh, learning Duolingo in kind of a fun sort of way. And we kind of joke because there's all these little scenarios in the app where you've got this kid asking his father for something. He's called Junior. And Junior always wants something. I'm like, man, is there no end to what Junior wants? You know, he's like, Papa, yo quiero un juego video, you know, and he wants it right now. He wants his video game right now, this kind of thing. And it's like everything's instant, right? And I thought, well, that's kind of like us, you know. I want it, and I want it right now. I mean, I got married when I was 32, Would I have liked to have been married when I was 21? Anyone who knows me when I was 21, if they have a good memory, knows, yes. Yes, I very much did. Problem was, I didn't know Naomi then. I mean, it's kind of frustrating, you know, because we were at the same conferences in some cases, but we never met. And it took years for that to happen. So I've told Naomi, you know, Naomi, I love you so much. If I had met you when I was 21, I certainly would have married you then. But, you know, the Lord in his wisdom 
had me wait till I was 32. And yet I can say, even with the limited knowledge that she and I have, we can both look back on our single years and we don't regret them in this sense. The Lord used us to do things that we probably couldn't have done when we were married and had children, certainly not with small children. So the Lord had his plans and his purposes and there was some preparation. And as hard as I am to live with now, I'm sure I would have been much harder in my 20s. I learned a few things before I got to Naomi and so she can be thankful for the Lord's chastening. But you think about how often in the Bible it is that way, that people are called by God to something and yet they're made to wait. So Abram, for example, Abram, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave everything that's tangible, all the security you can see. Go to a land that I will show thee of. And when he gets to the land, he says, I'm going to give all this land to you and your descendants. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Uh, but there's already people living in the land, the Canaanites. And God eventually tells him in Genesis 15, yes, your descendants are going to be sojourners in a country that's not theirs. And after the fourth generation, I'll bring them here again. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, God's timetable isn't just about blessing Abraham and bringing about Israel, but it's also about being merciful to the nations. Because today people say, many skeptics, they say, oh, that God of the Bible, you know, he's a terrible individual because he told Joshua to go in and kill men, women, and children and destroy these whole societies. And what would we say about genocide today? You know, we're more moral than God, really. The way they uh, abort babies and the way they uh, throw away old people in our world, I, I marvel that anybody has the temerity to question God's morality, but people do. And you have to know that by the time Joshua and the Israelites went into those civilizations, and I'm using the term loosely, because they had become so decadent and so degenerate and so self-destructive that if God hadn't sent in the Israelites to destroy them, I would contend they weren't going to last anyway. Because we know from archaeology, we know from ancient history, how barbarous these civilizations had become, how cheap life was to them. And God went in and destroyed these civilizations only after giving them more than four centuries to repent. And every time somebody from one of those civilizations cried out for mercy, God spared them. Rahab the harlot herself, not a paragon of morality and virtue. She says, please don't destroy my family and my house. Does God say, sorry, too late. I'm bent on destroying everybody. No, God says, spare them. Bring them into my nation. Well, how far was she brought in? She's in the very lineage, humanly speaking, of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Can you be farther brought in than that? Can you be a stranger and brought near and be made actually part of the family of the Lord Jesus? And yet every believer in this dispensation can say the same thing, can't we? We can say in Ephesians 2 language, we were far off, but now we're not by the blood of Christ. Well, they had to wait. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Stephen emphasizes it in Acts 7. They were heirs with him of the same promise. They were living in tents. They didn't get to call the land their own and build houses and plant farms and enjoy all those things. 
Then, of course, there was the child of promise. And God made Abraham wait for that, too. And Abraham failed the test of waiting somewhat. He brought Ishmael into the mix and, you know, through Hagar and uh, tried to work things out on his own. But God said, no, he's not going to be the child of promise. I'm going to wait till it's absolutely obvious to everyone that this is God at work, that this is not a little bit of God plus man, that this is not God giving humanity a boost, that this is a supernatural work of God so that I may have the glory. And so that people might know, all generations might know what I'm capable of. That in fact, I can justify someone by their faith in my word. And it's the very linchpin of our salvation, isn't it? He had to wait, and he had to wait years and go through hardship so that God could make the gospel crystal clear to us, as he explains in Galatians 3 and Romans 4 and other passages like them. Now, we, we consider later, you know, Joseph, who has to wait all those years. He has the dreams of reigning and having his brethren bow down to him. And yet it's 13 years before he gets anywhere near power. And even when he's in prison prior to that, you remember that he interprets the dreams of the baker and of the, of the butler And you remember that the baker is hung and the butler is freed. And even though he entreats the butler, speak to Pharaoh about my case, the butler forgets him. And he has to wait two more years. You say, well, was that really necessary? Yes, (laughs) in the ways of God, it was really necessary. Because God is aligning world events to bring things about where the famine's going to be at the right time, where Joseph's relatives are going to be in the right condition, where Pharaoh's going to be ready to receive Joseph's counsel, and where that can all coincide to where not only are multitudes going to be spared from starvation and hunger, but Joseph's family improbably, and I would say miraculously, is going to be restored to him. And all of that had to be conditioned by the delay, not to mention the training and the teaching and what Joseph was learning as he waited on God to unfold his purposes. We could go through the Bible and see many other things like that, where people wanted something and God made them wait for it. In fact, all of the Old Testament era, according to Hebrews 11, is basically in that category, that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, that without us, They wouldn't be perfected. They wouldn't be made complete. That there's now something given to us in the timing of God that is the capstone of all the work God has been doing through the centuries. And that's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will just say this before we go verse by verse through some of this in in John 11. That when we have things in life that we don't understand what God is doing, We don't understand his timing. We don't understand why not now? Why are you withholding this thing from me? It's important to hang on to the explicit statements of the Bible. In other words, what the Bible says clearly about God's character, about who God is, and about how he operates. We need to remember those clear things so that in those times when things seem obscure, when we can't really fathom what's going on, when we don't understand, we can hang on to this truth. 
And right from the top here in this chapter, we know the special relationship that the Lord Jesus has with Lazarus and his family. Because it is emphasized here that this is Mary and Martha. Now, we know they were often hospitable to the Lord Jesus. We know they were close friends. Also, the statement is made in verse 2. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, which you read about in the next chapter. But John puts that comment here anachronistically, it's out of time as it were, to emphasize how much she meant to the Lord Jesus, how much the Lord Jesus loved her, loved her sister, loved her brother. Therefore, verse 3, the sisters sent him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So they say it outright. Lord, we know you care about Lazarus. We know you love him. He's sick. And the Lord Jesus, uh, it said in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha, (coughs) pardon me, and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days. Now again, that doesn't make sense, that latter part. And if he loves them, we would think he's going to drop everything and rush to their side. Even if he knows, as he does, as the omniscient son of God, who knows everything, he knows he's going to be dead by the time he gets there. You would think he'd at least want to be there to minimize the amount of time that they are going to mourn. But he doesn't do that. He waits two more days. So by the time he arrives, it's been four days that Lazarus is dead. Now think of that. Four days of looking at the clock or the sundial. Four days of looking down the road. Is he coming yet? Has anybody heard? Is Jesus nearby? Is he coming? Will he get here in time? Praying, Lord, please let Jesus get here in time. Because obviously, for him to be healed... Jesus has to come here and do it, right? Well, not really. Because we know the Lord Jesus could heal from a distance, couldn't he? I mean, after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, one of the first miracles the Lord does is that there's a centurion whose servant is sick. He's really ill. And so he sends someone to the Lord Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus starts going toward his home and comes near, the man sends another messenger and says, oh, no, no, please don't trouble yourself to come all the way to my house and enter in. You just say the word and it'll be healed. I know it's like the military. You know how the military is. There's hierarchy, right? You've got the generals and the colonels and the lieutenant colonels and the majors and the captains and the lieutenants and down into the non-coms and all the way down to the privates, right? The guys who do all the ditch digging and the hard work, right? You've got this whole hierarchy. And he says, here I am, an officer in the army. And I tell somebody, I tell this soldier, you go there and do that. And he does it. You go there and do that. And he does it. And with your authority in the spiritual realm, I know you can do the same thing. You don't have to come here. Now, that's tremendous faith. I think of another military man in the Old Testament name in the Syrian in 2 Kings 5 that called for Elisha the prophet. And uh, well, actually he went all the way to Elisha the prophet's house and he wanted Elisha the prophet to heal him of his leprosy. And Elisha sent his servant out and said, tell him to go 
dip in the Jordan River seven times. And he was indignant. And who does this guy think he is? I mean, I thought he'd come out and wave his arms around, you know, something like you see on cable TV sometimes. Oh, you're going to need a whole lot of power, you know, and kind of do a song and dance and wave his coat around or, or wave his magic hanky or whatever, you know. And, and he'll pronounce some marvelous words like abracadabra or who knows what and heal him. <laughs> And he says, go dip in that little Jordan River, which compared to the rivers they had up in Syria where Naaman came from, that looked like a mud puddle. <laughs> you kidding? That little creek? <laughs> Give me a break. And his servants entreated him. You know, if he had asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? <laughs> and he went and he did it and he was healed. Now this centurion had more faith. So much faith that the Bible even says Jesus marveled. He said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. <laughs> and he used it as an instance of the Gentiles that would be saved and come in the kingdom and join the patriarchs in the kingdom of the future when the Lord Jesus has his future reign on earth. Tremendous. But even in this gospel, we know that there was the nobleman who came to the Lord Jesus in John 4. And he said, my son is sick. And the Lord Jesus said, go your way. He's well. <laughs> he didn't go with the man. He didn't come and touch the boy or anything like that. The man got home and found out he was well. And he said, when was it that he began to amend? When did he get better? Well, he found out it was at that very same hour when the Lord Jesus said, the same time, in other words, when the Lord Jesus said, your son is well. And the man believed. Now think of that. The Lord Jesus didn't have to be on site to heal. You say, oh yes, but those people weren't dead yet. Now, what about Jairus? You know, that ruler of the synagogue that we read about in Mark 5, for example. That he came to the Lord Jesus and he didn't stand on ceremony. Though he was a great man in his community, he humbled himself. He was not going to say, I'm worthy that you should do this or, you know, I really deserve this because I'm a, a big person in this community or I'm important in the synagogue. He fell down at the feet of the Lord Jesus and he begged him, come down ere my little girl dies. And the Lord Jesus began to go with him. And as they went along, suddenly there was a traffic jam. It was like Pines in University. It was so frustrating. There they were and they stopped. What's going on? Well, there was this woman with an issue of blood and she came and touched just the little hem of his garment, you know, just the outskirts of the flowing robes of the Lord Jesus. Because she said, if I can just touch any, any bit of him, even the hem, I can be healed. And she perceived that suddenly this hemorrhage she had within her was healed. And the Lord made her come and confess it. And the whole crowd marveled and everybody was happy. Isn't this wonderful? This woman for 12 years who's been tormented, who's spent so much money on doctors and hasn't gotten any better, but only gotten worse. You know, even Obamacare didn't help her. And there she was getting worse and worse, just seeing if you're awake. But anyway, you know, uh, there she, she was healed. It's great, right? Everybody's rejoicing except one guy, Jairus. Can we get this on the, on the road, please? Can we keep moving? That's great. She's healed. But my daughter's still in peril. And even as they're going, a messenger comes and says, why do you trouble the teacher anymore? She's dead. No point. And the Lord Jesus touches him and says, 
be not afraid. But the tense actually that he uses is keep on believing. You've believed. You've put your faith in me. That's not misplaced. Continue to believe. And he goes there. And you know what happens? He raises the young girl up. Now, when you compare the different gospel accounts, it seems like she dies only a very short time before the Lord gets there. So you say, okay, here, she's only been dead a matter of minutes, maybe, you know, 10 minutes, who knows how long, but the Lord can come in and heal her. But now there's Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. The Jews apparently had a legend that the Talmud later speaks of, that for three days, a person's soul would kind of stay around the body. But after that, it departed. So in their way of thinking, if if they had that belief in Galilee where they were, I don't know if they did. But, you know, to anyone's way of thinking, to medical scientists, to rabbis, to anybody they might ask, after four days, is there any hope of this man being restored to life? And, of course, they would think, no, there's no hope that this man would be restored to life. Now, you think of it, during those four days, we have the sisters going through that torment, that pain, that mourning, and saying to themselves, he's dead, it's too late. You know, maybe if Jesus had come in right when he died or right after he died, maybe there'd be some hope. But day after day has gone by, and, you know, there's no hope. And we know what they were talking about because when he comes into the town, Martha goes out to him and she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, is that a true statement? Yes, it's a true statement. The Lord had the power and he had demonstrated it many times to come and save someone from dying. The Lord had done it before. And perhaps after this, I don't know, maybe the Lord even did it again before he went to the cross. But the Lord had this power. We know Mary later, when she hears that the Lord Jesus has come, she says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. But on balance with all of that pain, with all of that angst, with that, dare I say, doubt, The Lord Jesus makes a statement. He says here, Lazarus is dead in verse 14. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. He's talking to the disciples at that point. He wouldn't come and say that to Mary and Martha. That would be cruel after all, would it not? To say, you know, I'm glad I wasn't here for your sake. I mean, that would just be putting salt in the wounds. But for the disciples, the Lord's letting them know a little bit more of his big picture strategy here. Because here's the thing. Church history has gone on now for almost two millennia, almost 2,000 years since this event that John 11 records. And there have been a lot of Christians who have passed into eternity. In fact, every believer that you read about in the Bible, Old or New Testament, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, every one of them died, right? 
So you're not going to run into John, the son of Zebedee, down at Publix. I'm sorry. Not going to happen. He's in glory. You're not going to run into Tertullian from the 2nd century or Augustine from the 5th century or Aquinas, if he was a believer. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, from the Middle Ages, you know, or anybody else. So there have been century after century of believers, some obscure, some whose names we wouldn't know, some we would have heard of perhaps, but known to God. And because they were believers, what the Lord Jesus later says in John 14 is true. Because I live, you shall live also. And the Lord didn't come every time that somebody had a loved one who was sick and say, don't worry, I can stop them from dying. In fact, the Lord himself, when he hung on the cross and was dying and his enemies would wickedly reproach him and say, well, if you're the son of God, then if God delights in you, come down from the cross. And even those crucified around him said, yes, save yourself and us while you're at it. We'd rather not die, thank you very much. Rescue yourself, rescue us too. And did the Lord Jesus rescue himself from death? No, the Lord Jesus went into death voluntarily. The Lord Jesus, as he said in John 10, laid down his life. He had power to lay it down. And he had power also to take it up again. He's doing something much bigger than instantly appealing to what we would want him to do. There is method in his delay. By delaying, it's now going to be evident to everybody. Not only everyone in Bethany, not only those in Jerusalem nearby, not only in Galilee and Samaria not only to the uttermost parts of the earth as the church grows in the book of Acts, but right here to Pembroke Pines, it's going to be evident that death is not the last word for the believer because the Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Now, let's just see what he says to Martha here. Verse 20, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's tremendous faith, you know? All those preachers that have been bashing Martha about her getting ticked off about the meal and the dishes and how Mary left her to do all the work and they've been picking on Martha... They ought to camp out in John 11 a little bit because this is tremendous faith and theological acumen, I may say. I mean to say, you know, I know what you're capable of, but even now I know that God listens to you, that he's your father, that he'll do what you ask him to do. That's tremendous. So the Lord says, your brother will rise again. Now that indeed is comforting. (coughs) But Martha had doubtless been looking at her chart uh, by Clarence Larkin of, uh, you know, the prophetic times or maybe A.E. Booth's chart from eternity to eternity or perhaps her Schofield notes. She was a good dispensational premillennial scholar. And she said, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Yes, I believe in a future resurrection. Now, that's great. 
to have your timetable of how God's going to work. It's helpful as we read scripture to know that God has worked at different ways in history, revealing himself, unfolding his truth, dealing with it with us in different ways. There's some practical value to that. But at the end of the day, my hope is not in a date on the calendar or a point on a timeline that someday the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, before the millennium, before the great white throne and the eternal state. All that's true. But you notice the faith is individual in a person. He says, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. See, the resurrection isn't just a day in the future. The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is someone who has the power to raise the dead. The power that can take a person, even when it's hopeless, even when they've been dead for four days, he can raise them up to life and restore them. This is what he's capable of. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And the underlying language there has a double negative. Bad grammar in English, but excellent grammar in Greek. He shall never, ever die. Never by no means die. That's the idea. Do you believe this? Now listen again to Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's to come into the world. Now again, we rightly laud Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Martha doesn't take a back seat to anybody here, folks. She says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's to come into the world. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the one who is the absolute focal point of eternity to eternity, the one through whom all God's purposes and plans come. You are the Savior of the world. I believe that this is so. And so she goes next to find Mary and to bring her to the Lord. Now, often in the Gospel of John, you find people bringing others to the Lord, right? You find Philip uh, being uh, bringing people to the Lord. You find Andrew bringing Peter to the Lord. Here, we find that Martha goes to get Mary, and she says, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Now, whether the Lord had said that and it was not recorded, or whether this is just what Martha knew Mary needed, you need to talk to the Lord, she got her to come there. And Mary came to him and She says, in essence, the same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Now, would you please look at that? You you say, well, you're talking about the Lord Jesus delaying. And isn't he really playing with people's emotions? I mean, he could have come right away and the mourning could have been just a matter of hours or a day, but he's left them mourn and grieve for four days. He's left them go through all that pain. And yet here we see that he is not impassive, that he is not unfeeling, that he is in fact touched with the feeling of our infirmities as the book of Hebrews says he is. 
that because he has suffered being tempted, he is able to give aid to those who are tempted. That our great high priest knows what it's like to suffer, knows what it's like to cry, knows what it's like to feel lost, knows what it's like to grieve. And he enters into this. And it says, Jesus wept. Every Sunday school boy's favorite verse, right? Easy one to memorize. But what volumes are said in that little statement? Jesus wept. That the Lord Jesus empathizes. The Lord Jesus enters into our pain. The Lord Jesus identifies with us in it. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, and it was really a resuscitation because Lazarus was going to die again. This wasn't the final resurrection when Lazarus is transformed and given a glorified body. That's still future. That's still awaiting the work of the Lord at the rapture. But the Lord knew Lazarus wasn't bad off. Lazarus was with God. Lazarus was in the realm of light. Lazarus was where there was no death, nor crying, nor sorrow. Wasn't weeping for Lazarus. Weeping for those. Weeping for everybody that stood by a graveside and said goodbye to their loved ones. Weeping for the death and the pain that death has brought on all this world. And that's why the Lord Jesus would enter in to that death. And the Lord Jesus groaned. He was, it's really an expression of indignation that death is an interloper. It is an invader that has no right to this world. And even the people that stand by say in verse 37, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Well, again, he surely could have, but he's about to do something greater. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by this time there's a stench. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, the next time you see Lazarus and the final time, so far as I'm aware in the Bible, is in John chapter 12. And he's sitting at table with the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful picture. Because when the Lord Jesus comes to receive us to himself, as he said he would in John 14, when he comes to call us in the air to meet him, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, with the assembling shout that 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks about. What succeeds that is the marriage supper of the Lamb, entering into the presence of the Lord and feasting with the Lord. And you get a little picture of that here in John, that the Lord saves people and ultimately raises people 
to feast with him, to enjoy his presence, to have a relationship with him. And yet, as I say, Lazarus and all those who pertain to him, physically they died again. But the Lord Jesus showed by this sign, by waiting those days, by letting them go through what they went through, he showed us that it doesn't matter the elapse of time, the Lord Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And when he comes and calls forth, the dead rise. The Lord's going to do that on a massive scale one day. He won't just come and say, Lazarus, come forth. He's going to come and say, my church, come forth. And Bruce Kaiser is going to come forth, my father, in glory now, almost 11 years. And my grandparents are going to come forth. And my friend's baby is going to come forth. And other people I've known that have died in the prime of life, some cancer, some other diseases, some uh, auto accidents, other things, they will come forth as well. And they will be transformed. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, this mortal shall put on immortality. This corruptible shall put on incorruptibility. And as 1 Thessalonians 4 says it, so shall we ever be with the Lord. You might say, why does God delay? I've been separated from my loved one for years. You know, there are people I know, they have been a widow for 20, 30 years, or a widower for years and years, or they, they've lived years beyond a child that has died. Why does the Lord delay? Why doesn't the Lord come? Well, the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And he is waiting to save the maximum amount possible to bring many sons to glory to bring a great multitude which no man can number of every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. And in order to make up that company, there must needs be a delay. And in that delay, the Lord comes to us and says, I am the resurrection and the life. I can comfort you. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I am the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. I can apply my holy balm of Gilead to your hearts. I can sustain you. Do you stop missing your loved one? No. Do you long to be with them? Yes. Do you pine for the glories of heaven? Of course. But you know that it's certain. You know that because he lives, we shall live also. Thanks be to his name. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. He is our hope tonight. It's not built on creeds or propositions or philosophical statements our hope rests in a person a person who raises the dead a person who transforms them so that they never die so that they live in the power of an endless life such is our great high priest our lord and savior our god the lord jesus christ we thank thee for him father and we pray comfort those we know some families here have even been recently bereaved Father, draw near to them in a special way. By thy spirit, apply the holy scriptures. Use the body of Christ to comfort them. Wrap thine arms around them in any way they need to just show them that God cares, that God hasn't forgotten them. 
that their loved one isn't lost, but with the Lord. And Father, for our loved ones who don't know Christ, we pray again for their salvation tonight. We pray for us to be faithful and diligent, not only in praying, but in witnessing. Help us, Father, for thy glory we pray. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.